Well, I hope and pray that as we just sang, I Surrender All, that that song and the heart behind that is true for you today. That should always be the way we posture ourselves as we come to church and as we come through the singing, which is meant to soften our hearts. And as we come to the Word of God, which often convicts. I don't usually title sermons. Um, In fact, I really never do. But if this sermon had a title, it would be titled, The Sermon I Should Have Preached Seven Years Ago. Church conflict is inevitable. We're more than one broken and sinful not yet fully sanctified person, some saved and some others being sanctified, some who are simply lost in sin, when they all spend time together, conflict ensues. We know this in our friendship, we know this in our marriages, in our families, we know this from work, and of course, we know this from church. There is no perfect church because there are no perfect people who attend church we all bring to the the room if you will or to the table of fellowship differences of opinion and differences of maturity when I look back over the last seven years here in Lahana I can tell you there were some really really hard times We have had conflict here at Lahana, at Calvary Lahana, that but for the strength of Christ and his perfectly timed provision would have caused our family to leave prematurely. Some of you know this. There's another church that I'm becoming more and more acquainted with lately that having seen so much conflict, they are genuinely afraid to grow because they're worried that decisive and problematic people might return. And what will they do then? Church, let me just say conflict is real and it is unavoidable. You here at Calvary Lahana, in our absence, will face it again. And I suspect that we who are going elsewhere will face it again. I'm praying, I'm preaching this today, first of all, because this is where we are in the book of Galatians. But second, because I'd like to challenge our church the way I wish that I had challenged our church seven years ago in these very things that we're going to hear and discover I have become convinced that that perhaps more than most other messages when it comes to speaking and preaching and teaching a church out of the Word of God, one of the reoccurring themes that we should come to is how, as a church, do we make it through conflict well? Because conflict is inevitable, but doing conflict poorly does not need to be. Let me say that again. Conflict is inevitable. But doing it poorly is not a guarantee. Look, church, we can work through conflict well. And that brings us to Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. 
Again, we've been pouring our way through the book of Galatians. And we have been looking at conflict up close and personal for Paul and for his audience. And we're kind of coming to the close of that discussion as he kind of launches and drives forward. In fact, I would say this passage and the next one are two passages that bridge that conflict and aim the church at the glory of actually living and serving like Christ. So the next few messages, I'll just tell you, are not ones that you should miss. Because the transition happens and the launch happens from here. So again, this is Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Friends, in the book of Galatians, we have gotten a glimpse of conflict done poorly. And it's in these verses, especially when taken in context, that we see Paul finally land the discussion and argument that he's been making for almost five chapters. We see the true and the full trouble of all of the conflict here that we've read about and learned about and explored even for our own hearts, landing in verse 15, which is where we're going to start today, the end of our passage. All of the theological problems, all of the fights, all of the confusion on new believers and the division and the dissension comes back to what we see in these verses today and into next week. Now let me just tell you what that is. It is a lack of love. It is a lack of love. Love for one another, love for God, and love for the things of God. So we look at verse 15. Again, this is the end of the passage we're looking at today. He writes, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Friends, I want to tell you, as a pastor, these are painful words. They are painful, but true words. Many of us have been in this situation. Many who should be among us even now, but aren't, have been through this. The pain of church conflict gone wrong. This is one of those verses, honestly, I think, that needs very little expounding. We read verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And let me ask you, is there any clearer verse about the dangers that we face in church conflict? Even though it's pretty clear, we want to break this down just a little bit. First of all, it says, but if you bite and devour the you, who? Who's the you? Well, it's you. It's the church. Right? He's writing to the church in Galatia. He's saying, you 
And he's not speaking about those outside the church. He's not speaking of the various enemies that we have in the devil or the enemies that we have in the world that Jesus says will hate us because it first hated him. No, this is speaking of the potential for you and I to be our own worst enemies. Now the good news here is that Paul says, if you... If you. This is important. Why? Because like I already said, conflict is inevitable. But doing it poorly is not. We, the church, we, the you of this, don't need to fall into this. It does not have to be. There will be conflict. But there's no, there's no question about that. But that conflict does not need to turn into biting and devouring and consuming of one another. It just doesn't. Now the biting and devouring, this image is, is of wild animals fighting for pecking order. We've got two dogs. We see it all the time. Our newer dog constantly just biting all over our other dog. Our other dog, who's smaller, way more established in the house, rules the roost. Right? Many animals use their teeth and their claws to settle disagreements and establish who is in charge. The word for bite here is also the word for sting, which makes sense. Because sometimes the attack comes out of nowhere. You're doing your thing, your church is marching forward, and suddenly, bam! It's like a, a bee that just shoots out of nowhere, or a wasp that shoots out of nowhere and gets you. Now, I think the translators here are right to use the word bite because it's connected to the words devour and consume. To devour and consume, I mean to, to eat, right? And I love the word consume here because it gives us a picture of what happens to the church when we bite and devour one another we are consumed. And when we are consumed, what's left? Nothing. Right? When dogs get hold of a piece of meat, what's left at the end? Nothing. Even if it has a bone in it, give them enough time, and that bone is going to be gone too. And that's what happens in the church when we have conflict. That we let go places it does not need to go. Now, if you're a student of Scripture and you're reading through this, you might be saddened by a detail we see here. One that caught my attention almost immediately. In two spots in our passage, it talks about one another. One another. We see it here in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by who? By one another. Now, what's really sad about this is that in Scripture, in the New Testament, this phrase, one another, is used dozens and dozens and dozens of times to tell the church how we're supposed to behave. Jesus uses it over 
and over and over again. Paul uses it. Peter uses it. Most of the New Testament users, or writers use it at one point or another to tell the church how to behave. And here what we see is the opposite. He says, don't treat one another like this. But we see in the New Testament the commands that we, the church, the you of the passage are called to. And to not be annoying, but to be really thorough, let me just list these. Because I want us to measure our own response, especially in conflict, on what we are told in the Bible, by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, how we should be. If you're taking notes, I can share these with you later. You will not have enough time to write all of them down. We need to love one another. I'd give you a Bible reference here, but it said that 16 different times in the New Testament. Starting in John 13, 34. So there's one Bible reference. Let me move forward. Be devoted to one another, Romans 12, 10. Honor one another above yourselves, Romans 12, 10. Live in harmony with one another, Romans 12, 16. Build up one another, Romans 14, 19. Be like-minded towards one another, Romans 15, 5. Accept one another, Romans 15, 7. Admonish one another, Romans 15, 14. Greet one another, Romans 16, 16. Care for one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Serve one another, Galatians 5, 13. Bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. Forgive one another, Ephesians 4, 2. Be patient with one another, Ephesians 4, 2. Speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 15. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Ephesians 4.32 Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5.19 Praise the Lord for our team singing songs, right? To one another. Consider your others better than yourselves. Philippians 2.3 Look to the interests of one another. Philippians 2.4 Bear with one another. Colossians 3.13 Teach one another. Colossians 3.16 Comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 Encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Exhort one another. Hebrews 3.13 Stir up one another to love and good works. Hebrews 10.24 Show hospitality to one another. 1 Peter 4.9 Employ the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another. 1 Peter 4.10 Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. 1 Peter 5.5 5. Pray for one another. James 5.16 Confess your faults to one another. James 5.16 That's a lot. That's a lot. Now I don't expect you to remember every single one of those right now. But church, when we're doing the one another's we are answering the prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father for us that we read at the beginning of service today in John 17. See, the truly sad thing that we see in our Galatians passage is that the one another's, all of them, are being ignored in exchange for biting and devouring and consuming one another. I remember in seminary, I, I did a, a sermon, and I don't remember what the passage was at this point, but I remember the illustration that I told, and it was a true illustration about a series of churches in some rural place, I think in Tennessee. You know, in this church, you, you've heard these stories. Church, church started as First Baptist, and, and then it split over this issue, and it became First Baptist, and it became Baptist Brothers, and then, you know, First 
Baptists then split again, and they got like 3rd Baptists and 8th Baptists. And over the course of 75 years, this church that had started at one in a small town had split into 16 or 17 different churches. Now just imagine the witness of the community to that. Going, man, what do these people have? I mean, they can't even keep their numbers straight. Let alone gather together in unity and love. That is an example of biting and devouring and consuming one another. They may exist in 15 or 16 or 17 different iterations, but really there's nothing left of their witness to the goodness and the unity of Christ. And so church, when we think about the one another's, I pray that we would never be a church that's one another's would be biting and devouring and consuming, but that we would be the one another's of love and encouragement and building up and pushing and, right, and leading and all the things that we are supposed to be doing. All right, so how do we avoid this? How do we avoid doing this poorly, right? If conflict's going to come, and it will, this morning, next week, the first Sunday I'm gone. <laughs> How do we avoid this? Well, the first step is to know where it comes from. We've got to know where it comes from. And we look at verse 13 to the beginning of our passage and we begin to see this. Paul writes, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Friends, the first place that conflict turns ugly, and hear this, I don't think conflict is specifically a sign of the fall. That's just a sign that we're all different. But when it turns ugly, Paul calls it an opportunity for the flesh. And church, this is where it all begins. This is where it all begins. Whether in our marriages, our friendships, or at church, when it gets ugly, it's coming from the flesh. Someone, some ones, or a whole group of peoples embrace the flesh rather than the spirit. Now Paul gives us a whole list of this, mind you. This is not a comp comprehensive list coming in verse 19. Most of which we're going to leave to Scott to look at with next week. But here in our passage today, we, we look at this, I want to look at this list because, because Paul is not just calling this a vague opportunity for the flesh. He has a specific thing in mind. See, we see, and we're going to come to verse 19 in just a minute to look at that. But in verse 13, he says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, Paul sees this negative, sees this fight as coming out of the opportunity of the flesh. But he's got a specific thing in mind. And the but there leads us to it. He says, but serve one another. He says, serve one another. And then moving on to verse 14, he talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. So in Paul's mind, the specific opportunity of the flesh is the fighting, it's the quarrels, it's the division that happens. 
And Paul drops the mic on verse 14 and says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Paul's mind, as he's outlining the conflict and how it's gotten so bad, he compares that to how it should be, that we would serve one another and love one another. This brings us back to the idea of the destructiveness and the division that we've looked at in verse 15. As we bite one another, we also consume one another. We've seen, we've looked at the great danger here already today. That there will be nothing left. But how do we get to that point? How do we get to the point where the biting turns into devouring, turns into consuming? Well, friends, we see this in verse 19 through 21. And again, I want to land here real quick. I'm not covering all this. This is not my passage this week. But clearly Paul is using all of this together. And so he says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, I like that phrase, the things like these, because it reminds us that this is not a comprehensive list. There's all kinds of other creative ways that we embrace the flesh. But what I want us to notice is the middle of, the, of words here, beginning with the word enmity, then strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Now, I would, I put money on the fact that most of us, when we hear those things, don't think much of them. Now, we may know they're wrong. We may know that when we experience them, we need to work on our self-control. We need to confess. But look at the things they're alongside of. Things like sexual immorality. Things like idolatry. Sorcery. And even orgies. Now I don't know about you, but most of the time when I find myself getting jealous, I don't think about it being nearly as bad as idolatry or sorcery or I'm not going to say the last one again. Right? Now this should just pause us for a minute. Because we get really loud and vocal about some things. But the things that are really tearing the church apart, we tend to kind of dismiss. We tend to not think about them or talk about them very much. What we're doing is we're looking at what Paul will describe in other places as the divisive person. Hear these words in Romans 16, 17 through 20. He writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, Paul writes, If anyone teaches a different doctrine does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, 
evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, I share this because I want us to feel the weight of the divisive person. Because, because if we're going to avoid that, we need to know who that is, one, so that we don't become that, and two, so that we learn to recognize it when it comes. So how do we recognize a divisive person? Well, first, I want you to look to the person on your left. Now look at the person on your right. For good measure, look to the person behind you and to the person in front of you. For some of you, that's me. Now let me give you a hint. It's probably not them. Let me give you another hint. It's probably not the person that you get in lots of disagreements with here at church. Now it might be that person, but it's probably not. Here's the reality. We are human we are fallen, we are broken, we think different things, we have disagreements. Just because you disagree with people sometimes, or even a lot of time, does not make you a divisive person. The divisive person also is not the immature believer, whose personality and patterns and habits have not caught up to their sanctified state, being made in the image of Christ. Some of us are just young in our faith. And I don't care if you're 60, you can still be young in your faith. It's not an excuse. But it's a good measure for all of us to recognize as we interact with each other that for some of us, we have grown really far and sometimes really fast, but others are, are slow tagging. Right? And just because somebody is immature does not make them a divisive person. Now, this divisive person is also not a strong believer whose heir who errs in sin and struggle, right? I've been a Christian for almost 30 years. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't sin in some way, or at least think about sinning in some way. Right? We make mistakes. And I, I hesitate to call sin a mistake, but if you're a mature believer and you fall into sin, there's mercy and grace. Amen. What happens when a mature believer is confronted in sin and struggle is that they immediately turn to confession and repentance. Now the immature believer will also turn to confession and repentance, but let me just tell you, it's not always as fast as it should be with the mature believer. I've said this a million times, I'll keep saying it here, I'll say it in Monta Vista. But there are times when we must confront one another, and if you're a mature believer, the confrontation should be enough to turn and, and, and follow God again. For the immature believer, sometimes it takes a little bit of time. You hear it, you pray about it, you get angry for a little bit, and suddenly you realize, oh man, they were right. And then what do you do? Because you're a believer, you confess that, you repent of that, and you turn back to God. So it's not the immature believer, it's not the strong believer who sins, it's probably not the person you disagree with, and it almost certainly is not the person sitting at your right, left, in front of you, or behind you. So who are they? Well, the Bible's really clear in describing them. 
In verses 19 through 21, we begin seeing that, right? They're people with enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. But it also includes those who embrace the other things on the list. From Romans 16, 17 through 20, which I read a minute ago, we see a few things. Smooth talk, flattery, and deception. From 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, again, we read this a moment ago. They are ones who teach a different doctrine against godliness. In other words, they teach that which isn't godly as godliness. They are conceited, with little understanding, craving for controversy, loves quarreling, envious, dissentious, slandering, evil, or bringing evil suspicions, and constant friction. From my experience in our culture today, this most often looks like these three things. The first is slander. The second is gossip. And the third is seeking to bring people over to their side of things. Those who seek to meet in secret about somebody else or about a situation. Let me say it again. Those who slander. Who say things about somebody else that may or may not be true. But with the emphasis of hurt. Or to tear down. There is gossips. Those who would speak of others without others being present. We got to be careful with this church. There's a fine line between care and love and interest in somebody. And gossip. And how we talk about people. I try to be excessively careful when speaking about somebody else and somebody asks, hey, where's this person? Have they not been around? What's going on with them? And to tell you, if you're worried about someone, don't ask me. I'm already asking them, hopefully. Don't ask Scott. He's already asking them. If you're worried about someone, you know who you should ask? Them. How many of us, when we've missed a week or two or three of church, and somebody reaches out and calls and says, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Do we think, wow, I got noticed. They loved me. They cared about me. Enough to call and reach out. Church, that's not just the pastor's job. That's the church's job. Do your best to not put your pastor in a place where to speak honestly about something. He has to gossip. Okay? Be careful with that. Seeking to bring people over to their side of things, usually in secret. Church, one of the things that I've seen and heard at, at, here in the past, but other places, is those who meet to talk about the problems of the church. And that grows, and then somebody else gets invited, and somebody else gets invited, and all of a sudden you've got a group of people who all think, and when you meet with them, they all sound exactly the same. They have the same exact complaints, even though the, none of them experienced the complaint themselves. When we have a problem with someone, leader, or somebody else in church, what should we do? We should go to them, not to everybody else, right? Now let me tell you, all of these pieces do not be, need to be present to be dissentious. You can have one or two or a few of them. My guess is that a lot of them usually go hand in hand. Now, I also want to say this. 
Man, I read through that list and I think, wow, there are times when for me that was me. And there are times when I think, wow, I'm prone to that. There may be times as I'm reading these words and you're sitting there going, man, that, he's describing me right now. And I want to tell you, if, if I am, today's a great day to turn and repent and bring that to the Lord. One of the big differences between a maturing or an immature believer and a mature believer and a dissentious person is that when confronted, the immature believer will get there eventually. The mature believer should get there fairly soon. But the dis dis divisive person, they're not going to get there. The fact that you talked openly and honestly about what you're seeing in their life is just going to cause more problems. They're going to get angry. They're going to get mad. They're going to do all the things they do and multiply as much as they can. Which is why we actually learn what we are to do according to scripture with a divisive person. Titus 3.10 and I want us to hear this scripture because it's serious. It says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now I got real quiet here and real serious here because this is, I believe, the only place in Scripture where we as believers are told never again. When you look at every other passage about confronting sin and church discipline, every single one of them have one purpose. Restore, restoration into the body. Hear this, 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11, through 11, Paul writes, I write to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or adulterous, since then you would need to go out of the world. Church, in other words, we, Christ's body, are not to remove ourselves from the lives of sinful and broken people. They need us because they need Jesus. There's a lot of Christians who will say, look, I, I can't, I'm not even going to associate with those people over there. Now I will tell you, there are times in our faith, in our life, as we're growing, especially as we're immature, we may need to distance ourselves from certain people or certain kinds of people. Like you're an addict, it is time for you to disassociate with other practicing addicts, right? With those who are not fighting it. We've seen too many who have been clean and then they just start hanging out with somebody they used to hang out with and bam! Our hearts are broken. Okay? But what he's saying here is that, look, church, we need to be around those people. And as we mature in Christ and as their temptations are no longer our temptations, it gives us a great spot to go back into those people's lives and share the gospel with them and love them. Right? The point of this is that they too would discover Christ. Paul goes on to say, 
He's no longer talking about people outside the church. Here's what he says. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So Paul's command to the church is that those who would call themselves believers, who are living in unrepentant sin, should be separated out. Why? 1 Corinthians 5.5 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Friends, he's to be given over, abandoned, turned away from because it is better for him to face discomfort, the discomfort of the temporarily, uh, or temporarily losing his faith family so that one does not lose themselves to hell forever. Paul's really clear in the church discipline as we get to that point where somebody is unrepentant that we are to, to send them out. And it's not so that they're out forever. It's so that they experience the loss of the Lord's Supper. And they experience the loss of the fellowship of believers. The encouragement that comes with that. Why? So that they too will repent and turn to Christ and be saved and welcomed back in. It is always restorative. It is always restorative. And if you think Paul's being too harsh here, look at Jesus. Matthew 18, 17. It says, if he refuses listen to, listen to them, talk to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. These are Jesus' words. He says, do not associate with them either. That's what he's saying. Usually this means the participation, like I said, in the Lord's Supper, the other fellowship aspects of the church, the benefits of the people of God. And we see the command here, just like in Paul's letter, to continue to love them. Right? Treat them just like the Gentile and the tax collector. Well, church, how are we supposed to interact with the Gentile and the tax collector? In love, right? Sharing the gospel with them, communicating to them the beautiful truths of God that they too might turn. Hear this, the purpose is restoration. That they too might turn. Now hear this, other sins, sexual sins, anger, pride, even murder. Church, we are called when somebody returns, when they repent, to continue to love them, to reassociate with them, to bring them back in, to restore them. But for the decisive, the divisive person, for the divisive person, Paul says here, what? Warn them once, warn them twice, and be done with them. Why? He tells us why. Because they likely aren't saved in the first place. Look what it says. Back in Titus, it told us. Sorry, got to go back to that. <laughs> wow, I lost my place, and that's exciting. <laughs> Church, he says, there it is. Have nothing more to do with them. 
Now, this is a heavy word. Have nothing more to do with them. Why? Because they are self-condemned. Those are his words in Titus. Now, let me tell you, it's not the divisiveness is the unforgivable sin. It's that this person has no desire for the things of God. They have no desire for repentance. They have no desire to receive and accept the mercy of God. They are self-condemned. But Romans 8.1 tells us, and if you're a believer, hear this, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if somebody is self-condemned, then they are not in Christ Jesus. Now church, I want to share all this right now. One, because it's what our passage of the Bible says. Two, because I want us to look at our own hearts, our own motives, and our own actions. I want us to steer clear of this present danger. Church, there is always a temptation to turn into the flesh, to turn to that, and to let that guide us and rule us. My fear in sharing all of this is that we would go on a witch hunt. Is that we would start looking around. And we'd be like, all right, well that person's causing problems over here. That person, right, they're bringing up things. The reason why I had you look at your person, the neighbors, and the person in front of you and behind you earlier and said it's probably not them is because what I really want us to remember is that if it's somebody, it's probably us. And that should be always our first bit of posture as we approach passages like this. It's never them. It's never you did this. It's how am I doing this? How am I involved in this? And let me just tell you, if you find yourself in this, and maybe you're a gossip, or maybe you're slandering, or maybe you're seeking and, and plotting in the background, or, or maybe you just really love it when other people are fighting, and so you're always kind of poking the bear. And today's a great day to, to turn to God and repent. Remember, the divisive person does not turn and repent. So if you turn to, repent, to God in repentance and confession and put that behind you, then you're not a divisive person. I want us, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage me that if we start finding ourselves in these places, that we would be first to confess, to repent. And if it's, if it's hard for us, that we would turn to one another in accountability. To keep one another accountable. So church, this has been a really heavy word. It's been a really heavy word. Now I will just tell you, I started with the end. I jumped to the beginning because what I want to do is finish with the rest of our time. In the joy and the life of what we're supposed to be doing, right? We've looked at what we should not do. And if there's anyone in this room right now who's like, you know what, what Matt said is, I like that. Let's do that. There's the door. That is not who we are. And that's Paul's point. That is not who we are. Calvary Church, that is not who we are. Calvary Lahana, that is not who you are. We are not the one another's. We are not the one another's who bite, devour, and consume one another. And if we are, there's the door. I'll say that for Scott now because I should have said it seven years ago. 
and six years ago, and five years ago, and four years ago, and three years ago, and two years ago, and actually the last two, three years have been pretty peaceful, so might have been able to ignore it. Praise, the God, praise God for you all, okay? Look, we're not going to be a contentious people. We can't be. Because we cannot consume one another. And so church, let's look at the positive of this, that in our conflict, we are called to love and serve one another. Now, here's what I want your take home to be today. Somebody says, hey, what was the sermon about? You can say, it was about divisive people and, and how they are not welcome at Calvary Church. That would be fine. Okay? But here's what I want you to say it's about. It's about how when we come into conflict, we're going to love and serve one another. That when we come into conflict at Calvary Church, we are going to love and serve one another. And praise God for our commitment to do that. Praise God for our commitment to not fight, to not cause those problems. Because we don't want to hurt people. Praise God, right, that we are a people. And I'm saying this like it is all of us, because I believe it is. Who are going to, when we face conflict, you're going to walk together and we're, we're going to walk forward, right? We're not going to do the things that we see. Here's the first reality we all have to deal with. And we see this right in verse 13 in our passage. The first thing we need to deal with, Christian, is that in Christ you are free. And you have an option of how to use that freedom. Paul says you can use that freedom for the flesh or you can use that freedom to serve one another. Praise God for that. That we can serve one another. Okay? We've been set free. There are no rules. There are no lists. How are we going to use that freedom is really the question that most of our sanctification, most of our becoming like Christ, as it talks about that, is concerned with. And Paul says really clearly here that we are free to love and serve one another. And church, I want you to know that I think this is the most clear and obvious, truest sign of spiritual maturity. That we would use our freedom in Christ to serve one another and not to fall into sin. That we would serve and love one another and not attack one another. Some of us have used, and maybe will again, used our freedom in Christ to grumble, gripe, and bite. Some of us have used our freedom to serve Christ humbly and to love and serve one another. See, because loving and serving one another is the heart of the law. And this is the point that Paul's been making all the way through the book of Galatians. As he's been talking about the law, as he's been confronting those who would use the law to attack others. He finally brings it here. He brings it to this point and he says in verse 14 for the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself this is the mic drop of the book of Galatians this is the moment where he turns the attack and says look you've been using the law for this purpose but this is the real purpose of the law and it is to love one another now the interesting thing is it says it's one word and in Greek, this is a bunch of words. <laughs> what does he mean when he says one word? Well, he's not speaking of one specific word. He's speaking about one final word. 
one final instruction. And he's going back straight to Jesus. Back to Matthew 22, 36 through 40, specifically in verse 37. When Jesus, when asked, what's the greatest commandment, says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, this is the mic drop. Now Paul, hear this, is not misquoting Jesus. Right? Jesus gave two commandments. Paul gives one. He's not unaware of what Jesus said, that the first command, great commandment is to love God and the second is to love your neighbor. He's not misunderstanding that. He's, he's not straying from that. He knows that the first greatest command is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. But in this particular instance, it is unhelpful to focus here. When his point is how the Galatian Christians are treating each other. What Paul knows is something that we should all know. And let me just tell you, if you don't know this, let me tell you this. Let this soak into your head. Very often, the second of these commandments, to love our neighbor, is how we truly demonstrate the first of those commandments, to truly love God. You cannot do the first without the second. People try to do the first without the second all the time. We cannot love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind if we don't love our neighbor. We love God by loving people, particularly as we read in Scripture, other believers. The reason for this is because God loves other believers. God loves the lost people of the world. When we talk about this, what we're really saying is if we can't love other people, then we must not love God. Because we don't love what God loves. Part of loving someone is loving the things they love. Now, you may not like the things they love, but part of it is loving we love God by loving people. And Paul brings all of this to this point in the discussion of the law because he wants to say what you are doing, what they are doing, the Galatian Christians are doing is not loving. They think it is. But it's not. It's not loving. We've got to love people the way God loves them. I want to tell you, we could spend hours talking about this. I chose four. Think about God and his love for us, his church, for the world. What do we see? Here's the first thing we see. We see encouragement. We see encouragement. You ever think about that? God encourages us? Think about this. God has every reason to crush us. God has every reason to criticize us. God has every reason to condemn us. Yet scripture, scripture is clear. That's not how he treats us. Church, we think about our own interaction with people. We are often so quick to criticize. 
we're so quick to tear down. Especially in seasons of conflict, we have a tendency to tear down rather than to lift up. We just do. Man, we get hurt, we get bit a little bit, and what do we do? We sting back. We, we hit back. We bite back. But Christ, and we'll come back to this again at the end of this section, but what did Christ do? When we deserve death, he died for us that we would live. Don Carson says this. He says, all of us would be wiser if we would resolve never to put people down except on our prayer list. Right? Man, the world has so much criticism, so much argument. Why would we add to that? God, who has every reason to be discouraging to us, lifts us up. Or the next thing God does in his love is he is truthful. He says and he speaks what needs to be spoken. Sometimes serving a loving one another is hard because difficult things need to be spoken. And it's not loving to ignore or leave someone in their sin and rebellion. I think about God who gave us his word so that we would not be left in the dark. He gave us Christ that we would see him fully. He gave us the truth so that we would know our own unrighteousness, so that we would know his holiness. Scott said this last week, it's simply unloving to leave a person in their sinful state. But hear this, part of being truthful is being loving. There's little point in speaking truth in a way that someone cannot possibly hear it. Let me say it again. There's little point in speaking truth in a way that someone cannot possibly hear it. Now, whether or not they hear it is not up to you. It's between them and the Lord. But there are times, there are ways that we say things that are true, that will never be heard because of how we said them. And I want to caution us against that. How do we do it well? First of all, prayerfully. And there are times when as a pastor I've had to confront people on sin. There's also times as a pastor people have had to confront me on sin. And I pray every time I do it. And I, and I know that those who have come to me have done so prayerfully. Right? If we are quick to criticize, then we've probably failed at this one. Prayer takes time. Right, when we say we got to pray about this, we're not just saying, hey, I'm going to take a minute and a half, right? I'm going to go and get my little prayer closet, and then I'm going to turn around and say something. It's not while they're still speaking, I'm loading up my words, but I said, quick, Jesus, give me the words. Guys, if we're going to prayerfully confront people in truth, it, it takes time. We may have to say, look, I can't respond to you right now in this. Maybe it's because we're too angry. Maybe it's because we're too sad. We say, you know what? I'm going to come back. Let's deal with this. But I need a little bit of time to pray about this. Or maybe you make the decision that someone that you love needs to be confronted. It may take time to pray. All right, the second thing that we do when we're speaking the truth in love is we keep things biblical. We keep things biblical, right? What does the Bible say about this? Not what do I think about this. Not how do I feel about this. What does the Bible say? If we're going to speak the truth, we better have truth behind what we speak. 
is what we think biblical? Have we actually done our homework to study it and learn it and know it? Okay, speaking the truth prayerfully, biblically, and here's the third one, and this one's the hardest of all of them. Are you willing to walk with them as they figure it out? Man, there's a lot of times when, when i got to speak the truth to someone and I would love for that to be the end. Bam. Done. Right? But no, man, I, I need to meet with them the next day or three days later or a hundred times more before it's going to soak in. They may need someone to walk with them to help them out of all of that. In church, we're going to speak the truth in love. Let me just ask you the question. Are you willing to go the long haul with them? Well, they figure it out. See, God is encouraging. God speaks the truth. Here's the thing. God is also long-suffering. And if you know me well, you know that one of my favorite characteristics of God is his long-suffering. To sum up what long-suffering means is that um, God could have and probably should have destroyed us years ago. But he hasn't. He maintains. And he's patient. And he waits. And he waits. And he waits. I think about how, God, how patient God has been with me over my lifetime. 30-ish years of being a Christian. 41 years of my life. And there are hundreds of times that God should have wiped me off the face of the planet. And I'm here today because God is long-suffering. Long-suffering. There's a great uh, story of a pastor. It's one of my heroes of the faith. His name is Brother Chapman. He was pastor in a place called, called Barnstaple, England. And he is likely the first documented replanter. That's why I kind of love him. One point, his network of churches, probably similar to what the Calvary family of churches would be now, was splitting. And he addressed a fellow pastor who had sort of initiated that split. He said to him, you should have waited longer before separating. The pastor responded, I waited six months. Brother Chapman replied, but if it had been a barn staple, we should have waited six years. How patient has God been with us? Are we willing to be patient with one another? Here's the fourth characteristic of God's love for us. It is utterly and always forgiving. Forgiving. The heart of the gospel is that the offended forgives the offensive. And I think about all the times in church, church conflict especially, when, when things are said that shouldn't have been said because tempers flared and people weren't ready for it. Or I think about all the times when things were said and they were meant. And you say, well, how can we move forward from here? How can we possibly move forward after what was said? Church, God moves forward with us after all we did to offend him. While we were still enemies, he died for us. He didn't wait for us to come to him and say, all right, God, I figured it out. I'm a sinner. I need you. No, he died for us so that we could figure out that we're a sinner and that we need him. In church, and I think about conflict, and I think about the pain. I just know that the first spot I always need to be is to be quick to forgive. And I will confess to you, that is hard for me. There are still houses that I drive past here in Lahana 
that I get a knot in my chest every time I drive past. Because I know what happened in that house. And I know what was said in that house. And I know the pain that it caused me and our church. I was years into it, and I'm still working on that. Years. Church, we need to be quick to forgive, but if we can't be, can we be long-suffering even with ourselves? Church, when I think about God and I think about the, the holy conflict that exists in this world, I ask, what is the conflict we have between one another? Here's the question that I would always ask moving forward. Every single person who has any problem with anybody or any situation at church, is your side of this worth tearing Christ's body in half? Is your argument, is your fight worth it? Now, I'm not saying there aren't things that are worth it, aren't worth it. There are theological issues, there are biblical things, there are practices that we need to maintain and sticking to that. But my guess is there's a lot of arguments we have in church, in our families, that are not worth tearing the body of Christ in half over. Can we let it go before it gets to that point? Can we let the pride, our way of doing things, our hopes, our dreams, our first thoughts, can we let those things go for the sake of unity? My prayer is that we can. My prayer is that we can. Church, is there anything that we've ever had a fight about at church that wasn't worth tearing the body in half? My guess is yes. Calvary Church, we have been a church for many years now that has walked into and through conflict so well. That doesn't mean we're perfect at it. That doesn't mean we haven't had hard moments, even in the last few really pretty peaceful and wonderful years. But my charge to you all today is that we would be a people who do not bite and devour, who do not consume one another but that we would be a people that would use our freedom in Christ to love and serve one another. And let me just tell you, if you need to go back to that one another list that I spent five minutes reading earlier, let me know. I'd love to share it with you. Because that is who we should be. That is what we should be meditating on. That is what we should be thinking about, what it means to be the one another of Scripture, the good one another, and not the bad one another. Church, this is a heavy word. My heart coming into it is heavy. It hurts. It's painful. But the good word is that this still has an if in it. If you, if you bite and devour. Church, that does not need to be what we ever are. Whether you're here at Calvary or you're somewhere else, that does not need to be who you are, who they are there. But that we would be a people that would love and serve one another. Amen? God, we thank you so much for your word today, Lord. We thank you that that we would see the ugly side, that we might see the beautiful side. And God, I know that for every one of us in this room, we've been hurt at one point or another by a church or by a Christian, by another believer. God, there is separation, there's hurt. And Lord, we bring that to you. 
And God, we think about your body being torn. Christ, on the cross, that you would, would bear the, the burden for our sin. And God, I pray that we would not bite and devour, consume your body ever again. I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with the encouragement of the one and others of who we are meant to be, God, and that that would, would enjoy, cause us to forgive, to love one another, and speaking in truth and encouragement. God, I pray that you would work in us even now. Maybe, Lord, there is those or someone in this room who has never actually given their life to you, or maybe they have, but through the pain of church, they've just been struggling for years. And God, I pray that you would help us today to, he to bring healing, I pray, Lord, that if they have not come to you, that your spirit would, would draw you, them to salvation, to confess you as Lord and Savior. God, we come before you and we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.